This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. These are ideas that aren't touched upon in headline culture and most media outlets. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased, but we do need your support. So leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In today's conversation, we speak with Mr. Daryl Malik Wiley, who works as an environmental justice organizer for the Sierra Club in Louisiana. He works with small community groups on environmental problems and their possible solutions. He has worked on public policy and environmental issues since 1972, when he first joined the Sierra Club. Today, we talk about what work he is doing in Cancer Alley, which is the stretch of Louisiana between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, with over 150 petrochemical plants. We talk about what effects these plants have on human health and what work he is doing with local communities to address these issues. He also gives us all advice on how to effectively mobilize for the climate. Mr. Malik Wiley also lets us know how to find if we have petrochemical plants or pollutants around us. Daniel and I also chat with him about the Formosa plant, which we don't really explain as much in this episode because we chatted about it with Ms. Sharon Levine, who was on our podcast a couple weeks ago. But as a refresher, the Formosa plant is a proposed plastics plant that would be built by a Taiwanese company in St. James Parish along Cancer Alley. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Mr. Malik Wiley. Welcome to the podcast. We're really happy to talk to you today. Glad to be here. Looking forward to talking with you. So we would love to just start out with your story. Um, so you work for the Sierra Club now. So how did you get yes. involved with um, climate activism and just what was your path? Um, I was in college a long time ago and there was a sign up said Sierra Club meeting. I said, well, that sounds interesting because I knew I'd read about John Muir and you know his stuff. So I went to it and it was interesting and I started attending the meetings and then they had, they had one of the meetings, they said, we need somebody to do X. And I don't remember what X was. And I said, I could do that. And it's been downhill ever since. So that was 72. And here we are in 21. So a long time. I started as a volunteer. So I've been a volunteer since 1972. Uh, hired on staff in 2004 in my current position as environmental justice organizer. For our listeners that are um, just hearing about the Sierra Club for the first time, can you explain to them what it is and what your job is? Right. So the Sierra Club is uh, a national U.S. organization uh, based in California. Its founder, uh, John Muir, uh, founded in 1892, was instrumental in working to preserve natural areas in the U.S., the national park system came out of Sierra Club activism. Um, the t-shirt I've got here talks about when John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt went up to Yosemite. And uh, that was one of the first national parks. And then we have Yellowstone, the Smoky Mountains. And so that was sort of what the Sierra Club got involved with in the early, with the late 1800s. 
and they've evolved since then to look more at pollution issues and what's going on with pollution. Uh, my career has always been focused on sort of the, the pollution and health side, uh, first working on uh, nuclear power problems, then chemical waste incineration, and then here in Louisiana with the petrochemical industry uh, up and down Cancer Alley and impacts on the co communities adjacent to those plants. I was living in Mobile um, to, um, as a profession to pay for my environmental activism. I w went into construction and became a carpenter and uh, was doing uh, renovation work in Mobile and a, a client said, well, I've got this house in New Orleans. Would you go paint it for me? I said, sure, I can do that. Painted her house, the one next door, the one across the street, friends of the phone. You know, so I said, I don't need to go back to Mobile. There's more work in New Orleans. And, you know, so I did that um, from 83 until I was hired with Sierra Club in 2004, continuing to do my environmental activism after work, so to speak. Mm, very cool. In your story of your life, you mentioned how petrochemicals affect human health. Right. Um, could you please describe to our listeners, how do these petrochemical plants being along this Mississippi affect the health of the population? Right. They affect the pop health of the population in a number of ways, um, mainly in the emissions from the plants. Uh, all these plants produce different chemicals under different chemical processes, but they always, there's always an emission that goes out into the, in either the air or the water or is put in a landfill. And our regulations, environmental regulations aren't strong enough to totally protect public health. Um, and so if you're living next to a plant and it's producing benzene and xylene and toluene, all of these chemicals have specific health impacts. Uh, Benzene is known to cause cancer. Uh, some other chemicals like uh, ammonia uh, are air to the lungs. Um, other cause different uh, chloroprene, which is produced at DuPont. Dinka uh, has respiratory problems and other problems. So <clears throat> these different chemicals are coming out of these plants in between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, which is about uh, 80 miles by the Interstate 10. It's 125 miles if you follow the Mississippi River because of all the river twists and turns. There are over 150 major petrochemical facilities. So Louisiana has uh, one-fifth of the petrochemical industry in the U.S. is in Louisiana. So it's a pretty significant amount. And the plants located along the Mississippi River are there for a number of reasons. One, before the uh, Clean Water Act in the 1970, they used to dump all their chemical waste in the Mississippi River without any permits. Um, two, the Mississippi River is great for transporting materials. They have ocean-going ships coming in, bringing raw materials, and then they can put them on uh, produce products, send it back out worldwide for export, or they can put it on barges and ship it into the major portions of 
up the Mississippi, the Ohio River, the Missouri River. So it's really good for uh, transportation. The third reason is resources. Some of the plants um, have oil wells located within two or three miles of their plant. So basically there's no cost for transporting the oil or gas. There are sulfur deposits. There are natural uh, salt domes. Uh, so, and they <clears throat> use the chlorides and the salts as one of the building block, blocks in the chemical process. So they're here because of the geology and geography of South Louisiana that's been formed over uh, geologic time. Wow, I knew it was a problem, but I didn't realize that it was one fifth of the ocean. Yes. That's wild. Um, I worked at a clinic out in Norco and I saw so many people with just crazy cancers. Yeah, more and more research is coming out just saying, you know, it's related to dementia. It's related to all sorts of health impacts in your respiratory system. Uh, uh, Parkinson. It's just more and more research is coming out. Uh, <clears throat> not that I understand all the science, but I can read the headlines. So in the U.S., it's one fifth of the U.S., but I also think so that the Stop Formosa campaign that y'all are working on and I've joined as well. Right. Um, that is a Taiwanese company. So how That's many correct. of these plants are U.S. owned versus international? It's, it's a real mix. There's um, BASF, which is German owned, uh, Shell, which is a Dutch owned company. There's uh, Laforge, which is a French owned company. Uh, Formosa has a plant already in Baton Rouge, which is Taiwanese. Um, um, and an another Chinese firm came in. So a number of companies, you know, uh, from around the world are invested here. And usually they're the largest chemical plant in a company's chain, like the BASF plant is the largest BASF plant in the U.S., the proposed Formosa uh, plant in St. James would be the largest um, single-use plastic producer in the world. Uh, a number of the refineries are here are some of the largest, the refi Exxon refinery in Baton Rouge is the third largest refinery in the US. So they're usually very large, complicated petrochemical facilities. Wow, and so, this, um, which we've mentioned already for our listeners, we're both working on the Stop Formosa project. Um, what would, if Formosa came in and built on in St. James, what effect would that have on the population um, and the <clears throat> town there? It, it would be significant. It would increase the pollution load in St. James uh, three times. Um, it would be a massive emitter of ethylene oxide which is a known uh, carcinogen, also causes spontaneous miscarriages. Um, it would increase its, the amount of uh, greenhouse gases emitted from the proposed Formosa site would be the equivalent of three large coal-fired power plants. So at a time when we're trying to reduce greenhouse gases because of their impact on worldwide and especially here on our Louisiana coast, we're permitting, proposing to permit a company that's going to put this massive amount of greenhouse gases in, into the air. So it's just, um, <clears throat> doesn't make sense to a lot of people. 
and that's why we're fighting it so strongly. Um, and this is not the first time that Formosa has tried to build a gigantic plant in Louisiana. In the 1990s, they were proposing to build the world's largest rayon plant in um, St. John the Baptist Parish at the Whitney Plantation site, um, which we were involved in the campaign then to stop them. In that process, they would have taken uh, wood chips, reacted them with sulfuric acid to extract out the fibers and make rayon. It would have smelled like rotten eggs all over uh, St. John the Baptist Parish, but our scientists looking at it, we have also would have smelled it all the way into uptown New Orleans at a Tulane campus. So um, we were able to stop that um, plant because of uh, legal issues and other ways we were able to stop it. The, the key property that they needed for their dock was owned by community members in Wallace, Louisiana. So, um, so that, that was, 1990 and we're still fighting there's a new proposed grain elevator uh that's proposed in wallace louisiana that we're working with the community uh we just yesterday was were i went to a court hearing in uh st john so even though the and the whitney plantation has since you know part of the plantation has become a international center for people coming and looking at what life was like for the slaves population as opposed to what kind of dress the owner wore. Uh, so it's if you haven't been to Whitney Plantation, I would recommend the tour, but make sure you have some downtime afterward to process what they're telling at that site. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and some of these these plants too, uh, which for our listeners who are international or not in Louisiana, um, they're built specifically on like poor and marginalized community lands as well. So it's primarily affecting those who don't have as much power as it is um, within the political system. Yeah, um, it, it, it goes back in when the French discovered Louisiana <clears throat> and um, divided up Louisiana into plantations. Um, we're basically still living with the land use issues created by the French because the French, the plantations went on through uh, US, at the end of the Civil War, the slaves were freed, quote. Uh, but in, what, were, what they were done was each plantation would sort of give a strip of land on either side of the plantation for the freed slaves to live in very small houses. So when the petrochemical industry started moving into Louisiana post-World War II, instead of trying to buy out all the, the African-Americans in the small strips of land, they bought the large plantations. So we've shifted from plantations that relied on slavery to petrochemical plants that are impacting those same freed slaves. So it's it's a continuation of this whole colonial process of um, that started early on in Louisiana. Oh my gosh, it's it's so frustrating for me to hear. And I think 
I've, I've become more involved with like climate activism within New Orleans and the greater area between, I mean, Cancer Alley, just in, in Louisiana in general, um, <clears throat> partly because I've gotten such like a close connection with the people of New Orleans since I've started medical school here. Um, and I, I really feel like empathy for these populations. But for those of our <laughs> listeners who aren't based in Louisiana, because we have an international right. listener base, why should people care? Like what I, there's so many aspects to this issue that are global and seen around the world, right. like colonialism, et cetera. So why should people care about this issue? Well, uh, people should care because they, most folks want to live a long life. And more and more studies are coming out from the World Health Organization and other international organizations that air pollution is cutting years off of people's lifetime because of pollution. So wherever you live in the world, um, most likely you're impacted in some way from air, water, or land pollution, and it directly impacts your health. If you're living near a chemical plant, it doesn't have to be in the US. And, um, when I was on vacation once in, in um, Italy, we went to Venice and it was a great time, had a great time there. We're leaving Venice on a train. Everybody is hanging out of the window on one side of the train, taking pictures of Venice as they leave. I'm taking pictures out the other side of the petrochemical plant that is polluting and I can smell it. So it's, it's around the world. It's not just Louisiana. You're a unique tourist. <laughs> Yeah, my life. My wife lets me take two pollution shots every vacation. <laughs> so during all of your research, you must have uncovered some personal stories that really hit home. Are there any that you can share um, for our listeners that that you'd like to share to people to make it, make them feel like they need to get involved right away? Yeah, um, BASF. Um, is a big German-owned company in uh, Ascension Parish. I worked with the community leaders uh, there. Amos Famewright was an African-American leader, was involved in civil rights movement. Um, uh, and in getting to know him and his history, his family, uh, poor black, they didn't speak, he didn't speak English. At home, they spoke Creole. And so he was drafted into the army in World War II, and that's where he learned English. Um, so, and the BASF plant in the late 80s uh, locked out their workers. Locked out is the opposite of a strike. In a strike, the workers say, we're not going to work because, you know, we need, they locked the workers out. So there was this lockout. It was the long, longest labor lockout in US history, five and a half years. So the, the workers started building relationship with community leaders. And so we started working, they started working with me with the Sierra Club and Amos Favorite with the Ascension Parish Residents Against Pollution. And a number of stories Amos told about how they would put aluminum screens in their windows and within two months they would be rotted out because of all the pollution in the air and he could list on more than one two hands all the relatives that he had known that had died from cancer and in working with 
Amos and Richard Miller, who was a union organizer for uh, the Oil Chemical Atomic Workers Union, uh, we coined the term Cancer Alley. And we started putting it out. This We're living in Cancer Alley. Uh, the, the union put up a gigantic billboard, welcome to Cancer Alley, thanks to BASF. And that sort of has stuck. Not only has it stuck, but as we got at that time, we didn't have as much scientific data as we do today. Today, science is sort of caught up in some cases that we know more the direct link between pollution and uh, chemi uh, chemical caused cancers. At that time, it was more a feeling that we had that there was some kind of link and it's still problematic in our scientific study of chemicals right now. You can take a chemical and test it through different laboratory processes and determine what its cancer causing impact is. But if your citizen lives in Louisiana or other places that are exposed, you're not dealing just with one chemical. You're dealing with two, three, four, five that are in the air, three that are in the water. And then, you know, nobody's really looked at the cumulative impact the cumulative risk and uh, impact on people. And that's, that's, it's very hard to quote, scientifically prove uh, what we're seeing in the health population here in Louisiana. Uh, so that's one thing that we're continuing to work with. And the, the other, you know, it, it's all, when you start taking these problems apart, there's so many different links it's really hard for researchers in Louisiana to find research money to address these because a lot of the funders are Exxon, Chevron, Shell. So it's, 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 it's problematic sometimes that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely hear what you're saying about like the scientific research. Um, Daniel and I are pretty interested. So we're both in medical school. We're in our fourth year. About to graduate in May. All right, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. We're very excited. Um, but something we've been really focused on is both prevention and more public health, but also lifestyle factors and how that relates yeah. to health. And those studies are so hard to conduct because human beings, ecology, nature works in systems versus just like placebo, not placebo, control, not control. Like there's not one factor that you can change. So like what you right. were saying, studying the health impacts, like you can look at one plant, but like you said, there's over 120 plants between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So it's, there's just so many variables. I'm not a big fan of health studies as they're currently tested. And uh, I've been through a number of them. There's was a report put out by... Um, Lois Gibbs, who was from Love Canal, she's got a nonprofit and they put out a report inconclusive by design. And they looked at how these health studies were set up and they were designed so that they would come up with no, no, no problem. And firsthand experience in St. Gabriel, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my friends, friend had a miscarriage. And so we, this is back in the mid eighties, late eighties. And so we're concerned about that, but then we started finding out more and more women in the area were having miscarriages. Uh, Kay Godet, 
was a pharmacist in San Gabriel, she started keeping a list of women and had had miscarriages. And eventually the list was um, 65 women had had 70 miscarriages in about a year time span. And so we were very concerned about that. And so we raised issues because we had also just, that was when they were first coming out with the uh, toxic release inventory data where you could track how much pollution was going to the air. So we had a press conference that said, fact A is all this pollution's in the air. Fact B is we had these miscarriages, we'd like a study. So it took a year fighting to get the State Department of Health to do a study and it took the Sierra Club flying Kago Day to uh, Washington, D.C. to testify before Congress. Then they wanted to do a study. They would not allow any of the community members to be in the planning process for the study. They said, you folks don't understand confidentiality. And we said, well, we've got experts from John Hopkins, from California, from around the country that will come down here pro bono and be involved in this. And they said, no, we can't do that. So they, the study design, and I'm trying to be quick, they put up a 1-800 number because you have to understand nobody had cell phones. So you, you had to go to this uh, a pay phone because a lot of the people in the area didn't have phones, call this 1-800 number. Instead of being interviewed at that time, you were given a time to come back so that's two steps the big mass to take. Then when they did the, the analysis, the year spanned the calendar. So they broke it into two different segments to look at instead of looking at the year continuously. The population was 85% African-American, 6% of which were interviewed for their study. And they came back with the decision that the miscarriages were not statistically significant. And they put a copy of that study, the chemical industry put a copy of that study every place. So, you know, health studies are really tough. We don't need more studies. We know it's impacting community. We need to have action to reduce emissions. We don't need more studies. For our listeners around the world who are starting to think about pollution and how it might be affecting them or their communities, um, what would you recommend they look out for in their city or how can they find out um, the environmental um, impact of pollution in their city? Right. What should they be looking out for? Yeah, that, uh, recently there's more and more um, mapping opportunities that, you know, ProPublica in the U.S. has just come out with a really good map that looks at uh, cancer hotspots in the U.S. Uh, this, the Environmental Protection Agency has the um, toxic release inventory data, which you can put in your zip code and it'll pop up which plants are around you that emit things. So those are some ways I know WHO has some information also on their website. Um, and if you're looking for a specific chemical, what impact it has, the site that I found most helpful is the state of New Jersey Department of Health has um, TRI, uh, Toxic Release Inventory, fact sheets. So you punch in a chemical name and it'll pop up a two-page, three-page 
health analysis of why, what problems it has, and then reference all, all the different things. So those are just some things. Um, it's just, if you've got a concern about a chemical, put it in the computer search. Nowadays, you can do that. When we started doing this in the 80s, it was more digging to paper files. So that would be the first thing, you know, find out what chemicals the plant is emitting and then just start doing your research. Yeah, that's that's good advice. And we'll, we'll link some of those in the show notes as well. Um, but I think that sometimes too, people don't even know if there's plants around them. Like you were saying, everyone's looking, taking pictures of Venice on this one side and then you're over here <laughs> noticing the pollution on the other. Um, and so, yeah, what do you recommend people to do if they're concerned? Like do you, just in general for like now right. climate just, activism, how do you get yeah. involved? Um, well, that's like Louisiana. You, if from New Orleans to Baton Rouge is 77 miles or whatever on interstate. You see one major petrochemical plant and that's when you go across the spillway and you see Shell Norco over there and uh, on the other side of the river, the Union Carbide plant. The rest of the plants you don't see because you have to drive River Road. So if you're in Louisiana, take some time and go out and make a tour of River Road, not looking for the plantations, but looking for all the chemical plants. Um, and around the country, you know, get off the interstates and go some of the back roads. Most plants like to be near water because uh, they need water to come in and, and be able to discharge. So um, just explore your Google Earth is an amazing util utility. And, you know, <clears throat> just focus on your community and then start looking around what's around and look for major construction because these chemical plants are not small. They're not in your garage. And so as a community organizer, so we talked a little bit about um, how you can notice if there's any plants around you. What makes a successful campaign and, and climate activist movement? It's talking to people. Too many times, you know, we talk to people every day, but we, we talk about fluff. We don't talk about what's real in the world, what our concerns are. Uh, and sometimes we just need to do that. You know, some, when um, the uh, Cesar Chavez, who was the founder of the farm workers out in California, people ask him what his, how could he grow such a large organization? He said, well, I talked to one person and then I talked to another person and I talked to another. It's about that personal contact. You know, you're concerned. You start talking to folks, you find out more people are concerned and then you have a meeting and then, you know, you start. And I'm not going to kid you. It's not easy because there are so many things, you know, stack the deck toward the petrochemical industry. But until you have that those conversations, nothing's going to happen. So you have to have those conversations to continue moving and building and educating yourself. Um, I know about, more about petrochemical pollution than I ever wanted to know. I majored in history. That's my passion. Well, you, you know, know the history of petrochemicals now. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. <clears throat> I love going to Europe and, and looking at massive cathedrals 
and castles and just the buildings that they built in the 13th century that people are still living in now, that's sustainability. Not this stuff we built in the US. Mm -hmm. Orleans is better than most as far as keeping some of the stuff around, but so that's what, you know, but from that history and understanding, it's trying to understand the impact that these chemical plants have had on certain segments of the population, uh, Hispanic, Black, Native American, um, but poor whites. Part of my, my, my family roots going way back are to West Virginia. So when I was a child, they took me to uh, see where the coal miners were coming out of the mine. And you, all you could see was their eyes because their whole face was black. You know, so there are, it's just, um, you know, there's movies out there, uh, Dark Water. Mm -hmm. Dark Waters talks about the pollution in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, and there's others, you know, nowadays it's easier to find books and movies and videos uh, via the web, but um, educating yourself and then you become the expert and you know more than the state regulators because their job is to sort of, they believe they're, especially the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality believes their job is to issue permits, not protect the public, issue permits. And um, so it's your job to help protect your neighborhood and your community. Yeah. And and those permits too are for essentially just polluting more. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I, I just want to thank you for those words because I think it's um, inspiring to hear from uh, someone who's been involved in climate activism for so long that the best way to organize is through conversation and individual conversation because it can feel like such an overwhelming issue. Um, and I myself have felt very overwhelmed by the amount of problems there are um, in the climate crisis and environmental degradation just in general. And that you can just have an impact by having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. So for all of our listeners, if you feel passionate about the climate crisis, just start talking about it and it can have, a, have an impact. Daryl, you've been at this for a little while now. How do you feel about the current state of where things are? Uh, I'm optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. I'm optimistic in that uh, President Biden has said some really good things about moving us forward. Uh, but we've heard optimism from other presidents and other EPA officials. We want to see actions, and that's what it's going to take, you know, what kind of policies are they going to put in place that can't be rolled back by the next president? Um, we're hoping to see some real action by from the Environmental Protection Agency with the new administrator, uh, Reagan, who I met when he was on his tour through uh, uh, his tour to justice through Mississippi, through Texas. And the new regional administrator they appointed in Region 6 is somebody that I've worked with for a number of years. So we're hopeful in that way. And I think also there's a growing sense that we have to do something. The way we've been doing things in the past is not uh, gonna help us live in the future. You know, I'm at an age where 
most of my life's past. But for young folks, um, it's going to be tough the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and that means the sooner we start talking talk about real change and real action, um, I think now is not too soon to be organizing and thinking about the election next year. Um, and we need to have young people running for office at every level, at city, state, federal. Yep. So what am I going to be voting for you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. We'll for? see. <laughs> I've been hyping her up for a while now. Like she's, she's what the people need. <laughs> we'll see. How do you feel about the future of Louisiana and Cancer Alley in general? It's, it's tough. I think that we need to have some significant actions. I, I saw the story that was in the paper yesterday, I guess, about the, the final governor's task force meeting that they're not going to meet the, car, the, the proposed uh, goal that the governor Edwards, um, you know, and they're talking about some solutions which are not solutions, such as carbon capture. That's an unproven technology. Um, the real solution is reducing emissions from the petrochemical plants. And nobody wants to talk about that because they have big budgets and they give lots of political donations. So that's a reality. Uh, at the same time, if we don't have those kind of real actions, South Louisiana is going away. Our wetlands are washing away faster than we can put them back. And a lot of that was caused by the oil and gas exploration of Louisiana. So it's, it's, it's um, we're in the midst of a fight. Uh, one of the people I work with is uh, uh, Re Lieutenant General Russell Honore with the Louisiana Green Army. And he said, it's time for us to stop being sheep and start being wolves and start really going after these guys uh, so and gals that are not doing right. So. 2022 should be a good year. Yeah, we're excited. But so a majority of our listeners are probably in their 20s and maybe early 30s. With all the experience that you have, what would you do if you were in their shoes and wanted to have the biggest impact that they can in their lifetime? Well, when I was, you know, like I said, that's where I joined the Sierra Club when I was a junior in college. You know, find an organization that think that has goals similar to what you want to see and a vision of the future that you want to see and join and make an impact. Um, personal conversations, it's a key, but you also need to help form strong organizations that move the movement forward. And so 350.org, Sunrise, uh, Sierra Club, Audubon, Gulf Coast uh, for a Green New Deal, all of these are activities that you can get involved with and help move forward um, our progress toward a different future view. Because the petrochemical industry has a very defined view of the future. It's produce more plastic, make more money off doing the way things are doing. And we need to break that into a more sustainable view. When I was doing anti-nuclear stuff back in the 70s, we came out with a document that said, you know, we need to do solar power across the South. We're still constrained by the big energy companies that don't want solar power 
because it cuts in their profit line. So we're going to have to make some real action at city council in New Orleans and around the world to make allow solar to be generated the way it should be on every house. And um, some of the, the, the groups that you mentioned, like uh, Extinction Rebellion, that one's international as well and national. Right. The Sierra Club has chapters nationally. Uh, 350.org is nationally. I don't, is it international as well? I think so. They're international also because I, I was trying to get in touch with the 350.org in uh, Japan. Mm. So, yeah, they're international. Uh, Friends of the Earth is international. Yeah, this, so there's a number of groups that are working beyond just nation-state borders. Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about the EPA and policy changes. What is like one policy that you would like to see Administrator Reagan put into place that would um, help the future of Louisiana and the nation at large? I'm working on a memo with six right now. Okay, you can name all six. <laughs> There, you know, one, stop the Formosa plant from being built. Two, really aggressively reduce the chloroprim emissions from Dupontinka. Three, uh, the Nucor steel plant uh, needs to really cut down on their emissions. Um, four, when we have hurricanes and other events, companies get what's called a startup shutdown emission. Uh, where they can, they're allowed to pollute because they're shutting down or starting up. Well, sometimes that amount of pollution is larger than their permitted pollution for the whole year. So that needs to be, that loophole needs to be closed. And we need to get the state of Louisiana to effectively enforce environmental justice rules and regulations. So those are the ones I'm working on for a memo to run state Reagan right now. Well, uh, Daryl, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for all of your years of, of work. Before we sign off, we like to ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. The future is ours to decide and move forward with. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.